Amen. You can be seated. As we continue to walk through this letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the second one that we have uh, in our Bibles, today we're going to continue to talk about how affliction plays a role uh, in the life of a Christian and ultimately what it's meant to point us to. And so we're going to continue that, especially in this chapter as Paul continues to hit that refrain of, therefore we do not lose heart, therefore we do not lose heart. And talking through that is going to point us to reality that we must look to and think about as we live our daily lives as Christians. And I've entitled today's sermon, The Best is Yet to Come. That what Paul wants to ultimately point us to is that this life is not all there is. And when we live life in understanding that and focusing our eyes on what God is doing eternally, we find the joy that we so desperately need. We find the courage and the cheer to keep on walking after Christ no matter what affliction arises. And so I want you to see that God actually uses affliction in our lives to point us to our ultimate need for him and the truth of what he is producing as a result of our afflictions. That what Paul is telling us is that the afflictions we walk through are actually meant to turn our eyes back to Jesus, to turn our eyes back to the fact that this life is not all there is and the best is yet to come. And how does he sum it up in these verses that we're looking at beginning in chapter 5? Why he's pointing us to the fact that one day, One day soon, we will perfectly dwell with God forever as his people. Tony gets it, so Tony gets to go home early. Uh, He gets to go have a little, there you go, brother. It's the idea that we as God's people will dwell with him perfectly one day soon. And that's supposed to bring you hope, it is. Christians shouldn't be miserable by that. We should be excited by the fact that one day all of this turmoil, all this affliction comes to an end and one day we dwell with God perfectly forever and God is dedicated to bringing that about for his people. Now what it also means is these verses, Paul is speaking to Christians. He's speaking to Christians, which means the only way there is hope in this life is if we're in Christ. That's the only way we can have everlasting hope. Ultimately, this morning, you need to be a Christian to enjoy the things that Paul is presenting to us. And I hope to drive that home as we go throughout this. But when we talk about the fact that we will perfectly dwell with God very, very soon, how do these verses point us to that fact? Well, don't forget that last week we looked in verses 16 through 18 of chapter 4, As Christians, do not lose heart. Though your outer self is wasting away, your inner self is being renewed day by day. And then how does he describe affliction for a Christian? It is light and momentary. And it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Then he says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You want an explanation of that? Welcome to chapter 5. What does it mean to turn your eyes to what is not seen? What are you to turn your eyes to? What are you supposed to see? What are you supposed to put your hope in? What are you supposed to fix your eyes on? Chapter 5, verse 1. We know is that one day we will perfectly dwell with God. That day will come soon, and that is a reality because what he tells us in these first four verses of chapter 5, and that is you will dwell with God perfectly forever in a day to come because you are getting new bodies made by 
that as Christians, you are going to have a new body meant to dwell and be in the presence of God perfectly and forever. And that's a promise that God is making to his people, that you will have a life, a body that can dwell with God forever. He shows that in verse 1. He says, for we know that that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, I believe what Paul is doing here is he's giving us a metaphor, a picture for what it means to live in this earthly body, but to have your eyes fixed on the thing to come, what is actually better. When I tell you that the best is yet to come, this is what Paul is referring to. And he uses the metaphor of a tent to describe our earthly bodies, that right now we are dwelling in tents. But even if this earthly home is destroyed, he says, we have a building from God not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. See, there is a key difference between a temporary body and a new body for all eternity. It is the same as a tent compared to a building. The tent is here, it's gone. The building eternal heavens for us. See, so often we spend most of our days worrying about the tent without ever thinking about the building God has planned for his people. Yeah, somebody's going to get that later. That we spend all of our time worried about the tent and we stop thinking about the building that God has promised us. And I believe he's using this for to talk about the difference between our earthly bodies and the resurrected bodies we will receive at the end. That even if this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God. Who's it from? It's given to us by him that we have every reason to celebrate and to not lose heart because God is doing something even in our afflictions to remind us don't put your trust in the tent it's here and it's gone and just so you know the building is so superior to the tent it would blow your mind Charles Spurgeon made the comparison when trying to talk and help people to understand what the life to come would look like in comparison with this life, he compared it to trying to figure out a butterfly by looking at a caterpillar. They're the same thing, but they don't look the same. There are similarities, but one is far grander than the other. See, this life is nice. This life is a blessing from God, but the life to come Ain't worthy to be compared. But it's hard to wrap your mind around that, isn't it? Because you don't see it. You can't touch it. It's something God is calling on you to trust him in. But make no mistake, the best is yet to come because God God intends to give his people buildings instead of tents. And this is something that's going to stand out. As, as our leaders met this morning, as we spent some time talking through this text, my brother Jose pointed out something I thought was very, very important. And that is we live and we exist in a culture that worships what? The tent. Everything we do, everything our culture strives for is based on the tent. And doesn't that make sense? If you don't believe in God, if you don't believe there is any life after this one, what is there left to pursue but to make this tent as great as possible? We live in a culture that worships the tent. But here's the problem. One day, it's gone. 
No matter how much you put into it, no matter, no matter how much time you spend on it, no matter how much you spend trying to beautify it, one day, he says here in verse 1, even if our tent, our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. So in a culture that worships the tent, God's people should stand out a little bit, shouldn't they? If we have our eyes fixed on the building, then how we handle the tent should really stick out to people that we live life around. Now, listen, I'm not saying the tent doesn't matter. I'm not saying we just beat this thing up and it doesn't. It, there is beauty in this, isn't there? God say through the psalmist that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. So this, this tent isn't unnecessary. It's not as if it doesn't matter. This tent does matter because it's in this we serve God right now, and we live life to give him glory. And we want to take care of our tent as best we can. But here's the thing. Don't worship your tent. And don't put all of your effort into the tent. Fix your eyes not to what is seen, but what is. So as you live life, you realize this tent is a temporary abode. And one day, you will have a new body. This sounds weird, doesn't it? This is, hard to, this is hard to wrap your mind around. But God intends for us to live life with him forever, to dwell in his presence. And he is fashioning for us a body to allow us to do that very thing. Think of the Old Testament. What did they have in the beginning? They had the tent, the tabernacle. Then what did they do after the tent or the tabernacle? They built the, the temple building. What was the tent? What was the tabernacle? What was the temple? What was that a, what was that a picture of? The dwelling, God's dwelling with man. Well, guess what? Just like the tent went to a temple building, guess what's going to happen with these bodies? We go from tent to temple. From tent to permanent structure. And again, that's not talking about, uh, you know, you get there and it's going to be, uh, you know, 8 by 10 and, you know, you're going to, Decorate. What it means is you're going to one day have a new body that allows you to dwell with God forever just as he intended for it. Right now we're dealing with these. They're imperfect, but they are the way in which we serve and worship our God. So we will perfectly dwell with God someday soon, and to show that, God says he's giving us new bodies made by him. And if this body is made beautifully by God, can you imagine what that one looks like? Could you imagine how far superior that one will be? See, Paul is trying to turn our eyes that in the midst of affliction, even though this body may be scarred, even though this body may be bent, even if someone kills us and takes this body, it cannot separate us from the promise of God that you will dwell with him permanently, and he's working and fashioning a body just for that purpose. And by the way, it's a house not made with hands. What's that mean? We can't make it. The only way we're going to have this new body is by who? Well, the one who made the first one. Who made the first one? It wasn't you. How many of you made your own body? If you think you did, we need to talk after church. None of us made this one. Who made this one? God did. So who's going to make this next one? So it's a house not made with hands. Eternal. Heavens. I actually think a better, more literal reading of it is from the heavens. It reminds us that we don't fashion this body, God does. And it's a promise he made to his people that in the midst of affliction, 
We are able as new creations to know that this tent, even if it's destroyed, we have a building from God. That we will dwell with him in bodies that he fashions for us. Notice what he says in verse 2. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. This body just reminds us that we need something better than this. And we groan for the fact that we want to be perfectly new in Christ in every way. No more sin, no more death. That's what God is fashioning. And we groan in these bodies waiting for that to happen. Paul was keenly aware of his groaning. He had been through so much and was going to continue to go through many afflictions. But he knew that his body, his tent was groaning for perfect restoration of every kind. That could only come through Jesus. He says in verse 3, If indeed by putting it on we may be found not, not be found naked, for while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that, we should be, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is immortal may be swallowed up by Life. Paul, for that spiritual clothing, that garment that he will wear that will allow him to dwell with God perfectly forever. And while this body groans, waiting for that, he knows that ultimately he will not be left naked, but he will be clothed. That God will fashion that body for him that allows him to dwell with God forever and to perfectly be in his presence and to serve and to worship him. And God intends not to leave his people naked. God clothe his people with exactly what he has promised so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. See, in order for us to enjoy the eternal life that Jesus has for us, we're going to have to cast this off. Am I comfortable with that? No, I'm not excited about that. I'm not excited about breathing my last. I really am not. But what I do know is what Paul says is that it's ultimately better because the life lived perfectly in God's presence is far better than holding on to this thing at all costs. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. Don't look to what is seen. Look to what is unseen. Turn your eyes on what God has promised, and that is the best is yet to come. You will dwell with him as his child perfectly forever, and he's making you a body to do just that. So not only do we not lose heart, knowing that we're going to perfectly dwell with him in for us. But he also tells us in verse 5 that this is a guarantee to take place. You know how? Well, let's read it. In verse 5, he says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. You know, you know how we know this is going to come about? Do you know how we know you're going to have this new body perfectly fit to dwell with God forever? Because God has already given you his spirit as a guarantee. Where does his spirit dwell? In these tents. See, God gives us his spirit to permanently dwell within us. Why? As a guarantee that the new body is coming. You catch me? So the fact that you have the Spirit as a Christian means that that is your down payment on the promise of God that you will have a new body to dwell in perfectly forever. See what I'm getting at? Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, God is fashioning a body to allow that to continue for all time. Woo, that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? To be able to know that because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, He is the guarantee of all these promises God is making. That he's not going to go back on them. And that we're being fashioned for that reality. 
And so we are guaranteed through the Holy Spirit that a spiritual body is coming that is appropriate for us to dwell in forever. And by the way, this is new life. This is what new life looks like. And it's far more glorious than any affliction we will face in this world. So not only do we know that we will dwell perfectly and permanently because of the new bodies that he is fashioning for us, we also know because he has given us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee of these facts. And so what does that mean for us? What do we do with that? How is that supposed to bring you courage and hope and joy in this life? I'm glad you asked. It's in verses 6 through 10. Paul says, so we are always of good courage. How often are we of good courage? Always. Through every circumstance, every affliction, every bad thing that can come our way, we have good courage in it. It means to be of good cheer. It means to not lose heart. It means to find hope and joy in a life filled with afflictions. So we're always of good courage because the best is yet to come. Because we're going to dwell with God perfectly forever as people. Because he's going to fashion a new body for us. Because it's guaranteed giving spirit. And because of all of those things, in the midst of whatever afflictions you find yourself in, you are all good courage. We are at home in the body. We are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, he says in verse 8, we courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So as a result of all these promises God has given, as a result of the fact that we're going to have new bodies to dwell with him permanently, because of the fact that, he's been, that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee of this outcome, we are always of good courage as Christians. No matter what affliction hits us, because we know whether we're here or whether we're there with him, we have joy. We have life. We have hope. And because of that, we are always of good courage. Doesn't mean you're not gonna have to walk through some very difficult things. You're going to have to walk through them. But we are of good courage because of what God has done and the afflictions that God brings are meant to remind us of that, to wake us up to the fact that this life is not all there is. So we are of good courage and notice he gives us the purpose as to why we live or we die. The purpose behind this life that we live now or the one to come. He says in verse 9, so whether you are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. See, God's intent our afflictions, we would continue to please him because that's the outflowing of good courage in Jesus. That the promises God has made that this life is not all there is, is important to remember in the midst of severe afflictions when this tent is being destroyed and decaying. We're of good courage and we make it our aim, whether we're in this life or dwelling in the presence of God, we make it our aim to please him always. Because of these things. Now he tells us here that there is a preference. He says in verse 8, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So what is he saying? When it comes to comparisons, which one is Paul looking forward to? He's looking forward to being with Christ perfectly forever. 
So he lives his life. He doesn't throw this life away. He doesn't waste it. He uses it. In this life, he, he has an aim to glorify God and to please him in everything. But he ultimately longs not for what is seen, but what is unseen. He ultimately longs to be with God, to please him perfectly, to dwell in his presence, and to be of good courage as he fights in the midst of afflictions. But make no mistake, Paul is looking forward to the upward call. Paul is looking forward to the day when he will stand before Jesus, and he'll be welcomed into the presence of his Father, and he'll dwell forever with the body fashioned by his King. See, we are always of good courage of good cheer. And while we are living this life, we always live it with our eyes focused on in the future. Is my mic going out? Is this going out? Okay. I may have to use the pulpit mic more, Mr. Charles. Um, but what he's showing us is that this life still matters. We don't live life as Christians going, well, can't wait to get out of here. Guess I'll just sit back and wait. We don't live life. We in this life, we are living with the aim to please. I'm going to change this out because it's going out too much for me. Yep. Is the pulpit up a little bit more? There we go. Is that okay? We're going to do with that for the rest of the service. But it shows that this life still matters because ultimately what's going to happen in verse 10, we're told that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So that seems to indicate that this life really matters, that how we live it and how we, you, we live our lives to the aim of pleasing God above all else, that one day we will stand before him to give an account of how we use the afflictions God brought, how we use the tribulations we walk through, how we've had to struggle but still remain faithful to him and kept our eyes not on this life primarily but kept our eyes on what God was doing eternally and that we are of good courage as Christians, that we point a lost world to the fact that Jesus is better than anything this life or this tent can offer to us. So therefore, do not lose heart. You know why? The best is yet to come. And this life may have goodness in it, but it's nothing compared to what will be for us when we are with God forever permanently. That that's what we keep our eyes focused on. And your afflictions and my afflictions are meant to remind us, don't put your trust in this. Keep your eyes focused on what God is bringing to you and promised to you. So what does that mean? How do you live it out? Well, it means that in all of our afflictions, you have a choice. You have a choice in every affliction, whether you're going to glorify and praise your Father through it. You're going to make it your ultimate goal to please Him in how you handle the affliction brought your way. So you can either choose to please him in the midst of affliction or you can seek to please yourself above all. To love the tent more than him. So every affliction that's placed before us is actually the same cry. Which one are we going to choose? Glorifying and pleasing our Father and how we walk through it in faith, giving him glory, and praise, trusting in the promises that he's made, or seeking to please ourselves, to spare ourselves, to try and walk a road of ease and comfort, or to realize 
that God matters above all else. See, this is why we need Jesus. This is why you need Jesus. Is because you cannot please God apart from him. You can't just wake up one morning and start doing 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The only way you can keep your eyes fixed, not on what is seen, but what is unseen, the only way that these promises of dwelling with God permanently, perfectly, forever, one day, the only way we have those promises, the only reason that is true for us is because Jesus died in our place. He took our death upon himself and he rose from the dead and he alone can promise new life. And so we cannot get this. We do not have resurrected bodies meant to dwell with him forever in the presence of God apart from what Christ has done for us. We can only please the Father through union with the Son. And so what you and I need this morning is not do better. It's not try harder. What you and I need this morning is to trust in Christ. To believe that he alone can rescue us from death. He alone can bring hope in this life and the next. That he alone can bring us into the presence of the Father perfectly. We have the presence of God right now, don't we? Yeah, we enjoy it every day in the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But we groan. We groan like Paul for the day when Jesus returns and we dwell in a new heaven, a new earth, perfectly with God forever. This is the promise your Father has made to you. But it's only for you if you're a child of His. So here's what I'm calling you to do. No amount of good church attendance can get this for you. No amount of giving enough money can get this for you. No amount of serving the community can get this for you. Only Christ and what He's purchased on the cross can secure your dwelling place with God forever. So this morning, stop trying to be your own God. Stop trying to earn your ticket to heaven and instead trust in Christ alone. Realize that sin brings you no closer to God, that sin destroys your relationship with him. Sin separates you from him and sin leaves us under the judgment of God that we righteously deserve. But in Christ, you can be forgiven. In Christ, you can find redemption. In Christ, you can find eternal life because he paid your death for you. So I'm asking you to turn away from sin, to see the ugliness of it, and to trust in Christ alone for redemption. And in Christ, when you've experienced the forgiveness of God, when you've experienced the renewal and the new creation that God makes, that you know, as verse 1 tells us in chapter 5, you know that even if this earthly tent is destroyed, you have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That as a child of Jesus, you have everything you need to dwell with God. And you're longing for the day and looking forward to the day when this tent is destroyed and you dwell perfectly in a new body, a building from God to give him praise and glory 
forevermore. So be of good courage, Christians. Do not lose heart. Though outwardly you're wasting away, yet inwardly you're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs it all. Look to the promises of Christ. In the midst of your afflictions, don't look at what is seen. Look at what is unseen. Trust in the promise that God has made. He is faithful to everything he says. And live every day knowing the best is yet to come. Let's respond to him this morning. Heavenly Father, I love you and I thank you for the good news. The good news this morning that as your children, we have hope. Even though this body be cast off and destroyed, even though death may come, there is victory in Jesus. There is life to come. Father, it's hard. We live every day under afflictions and burdens that seem too heavy to carry. But God, you've called us. Don't look at what's seen. Look at what's unseen. God, you're doing something. You're acting. You are fashioning for us a body to dwell with you forever, to gather around all the saints and to sing your praises forevermore. Only you can do it, God. It's only in you that we find hope. So this morning, God, I ask you to turn all of our eyes back to Jesus. Father, turn our gaze back to the one who because he lived the perfect life we couldn't, died the death we couldn't, rose to life because we couldn't, that because Jesus did all these things, we might have you, God. We might dwell with you. We might have the forgiveness of our sins and the promise of life everlasting. So Father, turn all of our eyes back to you. Father, help us to trust you alone. Father, this morning, remind people in this room that you are the only one who can rescue people from the depths of their sin. So help them to turn away from sin and to trust in Jesus' sacrifice alone for the payment of their sin. That they might find joy and hope and life everlasting. And Father, for us as Christians, would you help us to see that all the afflictions we face, all the hurt and pain is meant to cause us to rely on you, not on ourselves, and to turn our eyes off of this world and onto your eternal presence, God, that we would fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what you're doing that is unseen. That, Father, we might find joy today as your people in knowing that we can cast all of our cares before you and you welcome us, you love us, you pour out your grace on us. So, Father, help us as believers this morning to choose through the midst of all of our afflictions God, we're going to aim to please you. We're going to aim to glorify your name. So help us, God, to do it. We need you. Help us to do it. Father, you deserve glory today. 
not only as people come and turn to you in repentance and faith, but God, you deserve glory today from your people whom you've already rescued. So God, help us in the midst of our afflictions to turn our eyes back to Jesus. And remember, this life isn't all there is, and the best is yet to come. This morning, God, may we respond to you. May we lay all of our cares in front of you. God, may we lay our afflictions in front of you so that you might help us to walk through them with our eyes fixed on you. God, that we'd lay sin down before you to say, we hate it, God. We hate sin. We want to honor you. Help us, God, to walk in righteousness. God, do that for us this morning. By the power of your spirit at work in us, God, accomplish your purposes, not just in calling us, not just in sanctifying us, but God, ultimately in the promise that one day you're going to glorify us too. We cling to you, Father, this morning. We ask you to do work in our hearts. God, we love you. We want you to receive praise from us. We respond this morning because we love you more than anything in this world. And we cling to you. Father, help us to respond. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.